Good morning. Let's take a moment and just go before the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven our hearts right now to receive everything that you want to say to us. Lord, I pray that we would live lives that are on the altar and totally for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in this place, Lord, that we would begin to appreciate the things that you have given us for our edification, that we would find our place in your will and in the body of Christ, that we might be members of the body of Christ, that we might be heralders of the gospel of what you've done for us, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you empower, you bless, you work all things to your glory. Lord, may we completely surrender knowing that you are fully worthy of our trust in Jesus' name, amen. I'm really glad to bring this message to you. And I want to talk to you this morning about why we need the church from Romans chapter 16. The Bible always assumes that we're going to love the church. In fact, it's important to remember that the church is Jesus' concept and idea, but we're going to get into this. But first, I want to tell you that 80% of people today who are Christians, believers, believe that they don't need church. In fact, they're It's a new trend where a lot of people are getting what I would call virtual church. They're getting their church time from videos or from the internet or from the radio. And they get their fellowship from Facebook or from reading articles. Well, that's not at all how God intended us to live. We are to live in a community. There are also all these parachurch, and I would call that outsiders of the church, who are uh, forming organizations where all they do, they spend their time, their energies, simply to criticize the church. In fact, they know more about what's wrong with the church than what's right with the church. And they do things like they criticize, find fault, look for any infractions in the church, assume things without asking, accuse the church, slander the church, make up conspiracy theories about pastors and people in the church and church leadership, assuming that they alone have the absolute truth and feeling superior to every church. Years ago when, um, oh, I'd say uh, Calvary was first built about 1975, I'm talking about the edifice that we're in, um, there was a man who drew up a tract Uh, you know, one of those little books, brochure almost, that you would read against my father. And in this book, there's this man who was a itinerant, I don't know, speaker, I guess, going around to different churches. And he was saying in this, uh, his speeches that later became a tract, he was saying that my father actually worked with the Illuminati to receive money from Satanists so he could start Maranatha music. There were other lies and slanders against Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and against my dad that were contained in that tract. Well, my mother found out that this man was speaking locally at a church just about five miles from Calvary. And she said, Chuck, I need to go to that church. And my dad said, okay, I don't know if that's a good idea. She said, no, I'm going. And she took my brother Chuck with her. And they went to this church. And as this man stood up and began to slander and lie about my dad, my mom stood up and said, that is not true. You are a liar. And I know it because 
I am the wife of Chuck Smith. Well, you can imagine the uproar my mother caused. The man who was bearing the false witness against my dad in Calvary Chapel and the work of God looked at my mom and turned around and ran off the stage and out the back door of the church. Then my brother and my mom, my brother ran up the stage and out the back door following him. My mom ran outside and around and they both confronted this man. Not something I would suggest, but there was a special anointing on my mom, was there not? And she said, how dare you lie about the church of Jesus Christ and the anointed of God? And you know, there are those who feel so superior to the work of God and, and what God is doing that all they do is stand outside the church and criticize the church. They are not working together for the glory of God and for what God wants to do. Church is important. As I said before, it is Jesus who came up with the concept and the creation of the truth. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, and I will build my church. Jesus is the first one to ever use this term church. And it's the Greek word ekklesia or the called out assembly because church again is Jesus creation. And he says, I will build. Jesus is the builder of the church. Jesus also birthed the church. We read in Acts 1 and 2 at Pentecost. That's when the church first was birthed. And we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming with the power to be a witness. Jesus said that it was by community, our love for one another, that unbelievers would come to know that he was real. And that Christianity is a reality. That would be John 13, 34 through 35. It was Jesus in John chapter 17 who prayed for the unity of the believers. And in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul talks about the church as the assembly that Jesus purchased with his own blood. In Matthew 6, 9, we read that Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, not my father, as if I had exclusive rights to God and I only knew God, but our father, because it's about the assembling of ourselves together. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some has become but we are to be more earnest about assembling together as we see the day approaching. What day would that be? That would be the last day, the days that we're living in. It is so important that we love, esteem, and gather together as a church, that we don't isolate ourselves, that we don't walk away. We're told again in Revelation chapters 1 through 3 that Jesus himself holds the churches with his right hand and walks among the churches. In Romans 16, Paul points to the purpose of the church in regard to membership and ministry. When you get to Romans chapter 16, perhaps you noticed Paul begins to name believer after believer after believer who are in the church in Rome. 
In all, he names over 26 different believers. And it's interesting to me because Paul has a relationship to each of these believers because in the church, there's supposed to be relationship. We are related to one another. We are to know one another and to be known by one another. Paul names these believers. He, he knows who they are by name. Church is to be a place where you can come in and you are known by name. They know you by name. They pray for you by name. They know what you've done and they are for you. This is part of the purpose of the church. Paul starts out by commending a woman named Phoebe and we learn that she had been a deaconess. There Paul begins to affirm and confirm and bring out some of the things that she has done. You see, only in the atmosphere of church can you find a community of believers. And the church, not only are we known by name, not only is there relationship, but in church we are able to exercise the gifts that we have been given toward one another. We are able in the church to practice love and to be loved, to receive love. We are wanted in the church. We are welcomed. This is where they, they get excited to see us. Yes, you came to church. This is where we're accepted just as we are because we all know that God is able to transform. God is able to do the work and that God loves every person who walks through the doors of that church. It is in the church that we have a sense of belonging or placement or purpose. It is in the church that we have accountability, that people are watching out for us, that they are concerned about us. It is in the church that we are affirmed that people see that gifting and say, I see that gifting. Or we can tell our story and they say, I understand, or I went through something like that, or let me pray for you. There is nothing more exciting for me than to come to church and have someone say, Cheryl, God really put you on my heart this week. I was praying for you. I think to myself, no wonder I was able to make it through this week. Somebody was praying. There are times that I've actually felt those prayers. I mean, so strongly, and I think somebody, somebody is praying for me. This is a hard week. This is a hard situation. But there's somebody somewhere that's praying for me. It's in the church that we receive emotional support. We are loved. That we receive practical support from hospitality to finances to, to gifts. Um, there are stories about that I've heard, that I've experienced, where people leave packages at the church and um, at other people's doorsteps in the church because they sense and the Lord lays a burden on their heart. Years ago, when Calvary was just starting out, my parents didn't have much money. I was turning, I believe it was six years old, and I'd gone by a toy store and seen this giant doll. It was probably as tall as I was. And I said to my mom, all I want for my birthday is that doll. Well, my mom was aware of her finances, my father's finances, that there was absolutely no money. Maybe enough money to buy me a cake, but that was pretty much it. And so my father and mother had gathered what they could and, and bought the smallest gifts for me. And my mom was praying because she felt 
so bad that my six-year-old birthday could not be celebrated as she would like to celebrate it, and she knew my desire for this doll, and they just couldn't afford it. Well, that day she got a call from a lady in the church named Ruth Smith. Ruth Smith was an older woman, probably in her 70s, and she said to my mom, Kay, I have just done such a foolish, foolish thing, and I don't know why. You know, at my age, I bought myself a doll. I just saw this doll, and I bought it. But after I bought it, I felt like the Lord told me that it was supposed to go to your daughter, Sherry. Would you mind if I gave it to Sherry? Can I drop it off at your house? Well, my mom began to cry, and she said, Ruth, you're not going to believe it. Tomorrow is Sherry's birthday, and we don't have enough money to celebrate it. So Ruth not only brought the doll over, but she had wrapped it in beautiful wrapping paper with a bow. And they gave it to me. And when I opened up that box, do you know what it was? It was the very doll that I had seen in the window of that toy store. The very doll that my parents in no way could afford. The very doll that nobody else would waste the money on. But God saw, I love the church that Ruth could hear the Lord or think she was making a mistake and God could turn it to bless a little six-year-old girl on her birthday. That's the beauty of the church. I've grown up in church and I've seen the worst of church, but I'll tell you, even the worst of church cannot compare to the absolute beauty of the body of Christ, to the absolute beauty of the church, to the emotional, physical, and spiritual support that we get from the church. Where else can you go and somebody will say, I'm praying for you, or I want to encourage you, or I have a word for you. I was just recently in Colorado, and this woman said, I was praying for you, and God gave me some words for you. Do you mind if I speak them over you? And I said, no, I would love that. Oh, my goodness. It was as if that woman had been in my prayer closet with me. God had spoken to her words that were directly for me. It was absolutely amazing, and I was so encouraged and blessed. It's through the community of the church that we see Christ in one another. You want to see Jesus? Go to church. Look for him in other believers, and you will find him. You'll see Jesus in the support, in the love, in the help, in the giftings that each of us give. You'll hear him in the testimony of what the Lord has done. You'll receive him in the insights from the word that you get not just from the pulpit, not just from the pastor, which is important too, but from the fellowship of other believers. Of course, you know that. You're in the Joyful Life groups. You're getting this every week. You, you've experienced the words of knowledge, those words of wisdom. You've experienced fellowship, that mutual encouragement, those different perspectives through which we get a greater, grander picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. A friend of mine once illustrated it like this. She said, Cheryl, it's like you have an orchard of peaches and I have an orchard of apples. And you bring me a basket of your peaches and I sit down with you and eat them and say, these are so delicious. And you let me keep the seeds to plant some of my own. But then I give you some of my apples and you say, these are so crispy and sweet. I love these apples. And we eat them and enjoy them together. 
the fruit that God has given us. That's what we bring to the church. We bring the fruit of what God is doing in our lives and we share it with one another. And then we leave with the seeds of that fruit so God can begin to grow those fruits in our own orchards. Paul, again, as I said before, commended 26 people in this church. And they're known by name because Paul has a relationship with these believers. But not only are they known by name, but their contributions are noted. They're acknowledged. What you do is acknowledged. Their sacrifices, their giftings, their, uh, their, their uh, gifts to the church are acknowledged. This is what you've done. And not only is it acknowledged, it's appreciated. They're thanked. They're lifted up. They're put on public display. This is what they've done. It's announced. It's written and inscribed forever in the pages of scripture, never to be forgotten. It's memorialized. What has been done for the Lord? Eight of those people who are mentioned are women. Now, of course, I love that because it is the Bible, it is Jesus that esteems women and gives women a place in the church. Of those women that are mentioned, there's Phoebe, who's called a deaconess in the church. There's Priscilla, who, who with her husband, Aquila, and they're always mentioned together as a couple, which I really like. May the name of Brian Cheryl forever be together. But they together uh, risked their lives for Paul. There's Mary, who... Uh, was a great labor in the church in Rome. There's Tryphena and Tryphosa. It's believed that they're sisters who ministered together and helped the church in Rome. There's Rufus' mother, who's not mentioned by name, but Paul said that Rufus' mother was like a mother to him. Uh, you know what a mother does. She provides hospitality and cooking and encouragement and support. And Paul says, oh, Rufus' mother has been like a mother to me also. Then there's a woman named Julia, and there is Nerissa's sister. So there's all these women that are also mentioned right alongside the men who had been a blessing in the church because everyone and every contribution to the church of Jesus Christ is important and should be acknowledged, appreciated, and announced. Paul mentions the different and varied ways in which these individuals bless the church. Phoebe was a helper. That word helper is interesting because in the Greek, it's better translated protector. Phoebe, a woman, was a protector of the church. Again, it's believed that Phoebe was the one who delivered the epistle of Romans to the Roman church from Paul. So it was an entrustment. There's Aquila and Priscilla who Paul says, they're fellow workers. They risk their lives for me. They host the church in their house in Rome. There's Eponidas, one of the first to come to faith in Achaia. There's Mary who labored much for Paul and his companions. There's Adronicus and Hunia, Jews and fellow prisoners, apostles or sent out ones and longtime believers. There's Amplius, who's beloved in the Lord, Urbanus, a fellow worker. And, and here when Paul says fellow worker, do you realize what he's doing? He's saying my equal. He's saying he has equal status to me. His contribution to the church and the body of Christ is as important as mine, a fellow worker. 
There is Stachys, and Paul says, beloved. There's Apelles, approved in Christ. There's the household of Aristobulus. There is Herodian, a kinsman and Jew. There's the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Paul acknowledges that they are in Christ. They have all the blessings of Ephesians chapter one of being in Christ. I love this because those parachurch organizations are always trying to disqualify believers and say, you're not really a believer. You're not a believer unless you're following me. But we are believers because we are in the Lord. And Paul says of the household of Narcissus, they're in the Lord. They're covered. They're safe. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Again, Tryphena and Tryphosas, who are uh, laborers in the Lord. There's Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Rufus, who is chosen in the Lord. Rufus' mother, again, who served as a mother to Paul. And then Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and other brethren. Philogus, Julia, Nereus, Nereus' sister, Olympus, and the saints that are with them. It is in the community of church that we are known, appreciated, wanted, loved, belonging, able to exercise our gifts, practice our Christianity, have accountability, and fellowship. These are the members in the church. You see, there are great people. There are saints in the church. There are people that you need to get to know in the church. There are people that are so esteemed, so loved in the church. And when you begin to find out their testimony and what they're doing for Jesus, oh my goodness. I, I think of David when he says, these are the beloved of the Lord in whom is all my delight. There is something about going to church and seeing these people and, and recognizing how amazing they are, amazing to God, amazing in the gifts that God has given them. You know, as C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. The people that you meet in church are all destined for exceeding great glory. And God has foreordained for every person you see in church good works that they are going to walk in. Oh, how we need to appreciate the people in the body of Christ and esteem them as Paul did, as co-laborers beloved in the Lord. So now we know who the members are, but what is the ministry of the church? Why is the church essential when it comes to ministry? Well, first of all, we learn in verses 17 and 18, the ministry of the church is to protect the believers from wolves. Now I urge you, brother, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. These are what we might call wolves in sheep's clothing. In Acts 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul is warning the church leadership of the church of Ephesus and other churches. He's on the shore of Miletus and he says to them, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, 
Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Paul warns the believers in Rome to watch out for and not to trust. Remember, we're to look at the fruit. You know, you'll, a tree is known by their fruits. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. We are to look for those who cause division, who divide the body or set one believer against another or one group against another or one church against another church. Those who cause offenses, uh, those who sin freely and invite others to sin freely, uh, those who are doing a checklist, both legalism and those who take liberties they shouldn't, those who are contrary to the doctrine of the Bible, those who start teaching an aberrant doctrine or pushing an aberrant doctrine, um, such as, you know, there's no need for the virgin birth or there's no need for creation or um, that God doesn't see anything, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. These are the people that we need to avoid. What is it to avoid them? It means not to listen, not to engage, and to keep them at a distance. Paul says that these false brethren, these people that come into the church who cause divisions, who are um, causing offenses, who are teaching things contrary to sound doctrine, that they do this for self-gratification, to fill up their own belly. It's another way of to, to feed their own lust or their own appetites, their appetite for ambition because they wanna be the number one in this group because they want popularity or they want the leadership and they're jealous of the leadership that's there because they wanna draw, as Paul warned in Acts chapter 20, disciples after themselves and not after Jesus Christ because they wanna be important, that they wanna feel better about themselves or sometimes for greed, that they want, they're greedy. They, they want what they see um, in the church. They want the money or the finances, or they want the praise. They wanna feel important. They're doing it for their own um, sense of self-importance. That's why they do these things. And they do not serve the Lord. It's interesting how many of these para-church organizations think they are serving God. God by their slander, by their accusation, by their harm to the body of church. They actually feel like this is their spiritual service to God. I got to stop, right? I got to stop. Calm down, Cheryl. I know what you're thinking. But we're told that they use smooth words, they use flattering speech, and they deceive the simple, who are the simple? They're the innocent or the new believers. Often they'll say, oh, if you were really spiritual, you would see this. And if you were really spiritual, or if you had my knowledge, you would realize this. And, you know, they come up with the most insidious, satanic, demonic accusations against the church, against pastors, and against believers. But that's why we need the body of Christ to protect from false doctrine, from false brethren. We need to just keep heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to keep warning each other. Um, you know, often 
I will have a check in my spirit about somebody and, and another believer will come up to me and say, I just feel a check. And I think, yes, I'm getting affirmed and confirmed. Now let's draw back and just watch and just wait. It is also to protect believers from evil. In verse 19, Paul says, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. We need to, to keep reinforcing the good and to warn and yet not uh, be overly preoccupied with the evil, but to be overly preoccupied with the good, what God is doing. It's so easy to get preoccupied with what the devil is doing and to not see or forget all the great things that God is doing. I don't think anything gives the devil more pleasure than when we get our eyes off the blessings that God is giving on the things he is doing and get our eyes on the devil's work. Why? Because then we are giving more attention to the devil than we are to Jesus Christ. We're not being thankful. We're not counting all our blessings. We're just thinking about how strong the devil is and how he seems to be taking over everything. No, it's in church that we get the right perspective. In Psalm 73, the psalmist was saying, you know, I almost lost it because I was looking at the prosperity of the wicked and I thought, I'm going down. The wicked always seems to have the advantage. He said, until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And then that right perspective came. That's another reason for church. Church is to Again, give you that right perspective. Get you preoccupied with Jesus Christ. You come in the door, you're greeted by believers and you realize, wow, I'm not alone. Then you begin to praise and you realize all that God is and all that he's doing as we sing his praises. And as we sing praises, we are extolling the goodness and the greatness of God. And then we go to his word and we hear all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And then we pray and we open up our hearts again to the Lord and we receive that right perspective. We also need church to protect us from the devil's work. Again, I want to remind you that the devil is the one who causes division. In Luke 11, 17, we're told that a house divided against itself cannot stand. The devil wants to ruin our witness to the world. He slanders his name. Satan means diabolos or slander. He accuses the brethren, we're told in Revelation. He uses unforgiveness, Paul tells us in Corinthians. And he causes unrest, dissension, and confusion, we're told in James. But Paul says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. In church, we are reminded of Satan's devices and his demise. We are shown again how limited his power and his strength are. But also in church, we learn not to take the devil on ourselves, but we let the God of peace, the God of shalom, deal with our adversary. But also in the church, we receive edification of the body. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Paul names nine men who were partnered with him in writing the epistle to the Romans. He first mentions Timothy, fellow worker, again, that equal status. Even though Timothy was younger, even though Paul often equated Timothy with a son in the faith, he also says he's my equal. He is a fellow worker. Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, who he says are kinsmen, they're Jews, and who would be familiar with Judaism and Old Testament. No doubt these are some of the men that Paul talked about, the grace of God, who poured over the Old Testament scriptures and as they sat together received greater and greater revelation. There's uh, Tertius who wrote uh, for Paul, the Amunesis, or the one who wrote out what Paul was saying. Paul was saying it, and he was writing it out, this, this scribe of the epistle of Romans. There's Gaius, with whom Paul was staying, and who hosted the church in Corinth. There is Erastus. Now, I love Erastus because we're told he was the treasure in Corinth. This is fascinating because for years, uh, the critics of the Bible said, oh, see, the Bible's wrong. There's no evidence that there was ever an Erastus who was a treasure in Corinth. Well, excavations in Corinth have revealed a capstone um, at the bottom of the threshold of a building that says Erastus, treasure of Corinth, and even gives the time in which he served in that office, which brings us back to Paul's lifetime. Amazing. And then there's Cordus. And Paul says, these are friends and companions. Body edification takes more than one person. We can't expect the pastor to do it all or the pastors to do it all. There are many people who make up the body of Christ. First of all, there is the staff. But do you know who's involved here at Calvary Chapel? Do you know all the people that we depend upon, that we all have to cooperate and work together from custodians, sound techs, administrators, secretaries, decorators, maintenance, teachers, and so many more. You know, your own body is made up of millions of cells which make up millions of organisms, which make up million, uh, sorry, which make up organisms which make up systems. And these systems, 12 systems in your body, all have to work in cooperation with each other. If one system, one of those 12s, refuses to cooperate with the rest of the systems, your whole body breaks down. Same thing with the church. If we begin to not cooperate working together, then the body's going to break down and the body's going to suffer. But the church is for body edification that we might give greater edification, fuller edification to the whole church. It's through our many members that we get a full picture of Jesus and full edification of the members. Next, the ministry of the church is proclamation of the gospel, verses 24 through 26, where Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Now, 
to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest by the prophetic scriptures, has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Within the church, we are reminding the people in the church of the grace of God. That's a teaching. That's what we receive. We herald in the church the grace of God. We teach and we preach to the people in the church the gospel of Jesus Christ. We establish members in the faith of Jesus Christ. We invite Jew and Gentile to come to Christ. We teach the scripture, proving the validity of God's word. We give revelation of the mystery of God. We teach the way of obedience to God and the wisdom of God is heard and announced and preached. This is what is happening in the church. But not only does the church have a ministry to those within the church, but it also has a ministry to the world. And the ministry to the world is also the proclamation of the gospel. It's the preaching. The church shines as a light on a hill. Jesus described it in Matthew 5.14 as a city, Polaris, that's on a hill and the light can't be hidden. Well, a city gets its light, its light from many lights being uh, shining, many candles being uh, burned. That's where the light comes from. Alone, we have a dim light, but when we gather together as believers, the light shines even brighter and it becomes a beacon to those out in the world to come. They're drawn to the light. Many lights shining together in one place create the brightness and the draw. A refuge to those who are guilty and need forgiveness, to those who are thirsty, to those who recognize the darkness and long for the light. Here we are shining as the church, but also the church for the world and even for believers is a glimpse or a foretaste of heaven. Jesus promised to the to those in the church in Matthew 16, 19, he says this, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever is bound in heaven is bound in the church or is to be bound in the church. These are the things that should not be in the church. Lying, hatred, harm, pain, bitterness, murder, immorality, greed, unforgiveness. Those things should not be in the church. But what should be in the church is love and praise and joy and singing and grace. Jesus on the throne at the center being worshiped where every tribe and kindred and tongue is represented as it is in heaven, as everyone gathers around the throne and praises God. This is what the church should be like and look like. This is what we need to pray for the church, that these things would be bound in the church from hatred to greed, but the things that should be loosed in the church, more love, more grace, more joy, more praise, more you know, deliverance, more healing, more freedom, more liberty. 
In Paul's day, the church stood out in bold distinction to the secular society by its purity, by its love, by its esteem for women, by its esteem for life, by its morality, by its nonviolence, by their benevolent acts for the poor, by their self, uh, self-sacrifice for each other and for the gospel, and by their suffering. Satan today is working overtime to destroy the church. He recognizes the church as a great witness to the world, as a refuge from his attacks, as a means of transformation and change and salvation. It is believers who fail to recognize the power that God has given to his church. Going back to Matthew again, Chapter 18, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Do you see that? The church as a body of believers has power to bind, to loose, to pray, to have the presence of Jesus among them. Wherever two or three are gathered together, that's a church, to gather together. How are we part of this great community? Well, in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, Jesus referred, uh, in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, you remember Peter says this, that we come to Jesus as the cornerstone, that we are living stones being built together to a great edifice. Perhaps you remember in Matthew that Jesus said, Peter, you are a little little stone, but on this rock, the rock of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Peter now taking that same illustration that he received from Jesus, said Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Those whose lives are on the altar build their lives upon Jesus Christ. But what does the cornerstone do? The cornerstone is where every other stone is aligned to the cornerstone. So when our lives are on the altar, we align our lives with Jesus Christ where he wants us. But where does he want us? He wants us in between other stones being built up into this church. In other words, Jesus wants you in his church. He has a place for you in this church among the other believers. And as we put our lives on the altar, God is going to align us with the cornerstone, with Jesus Christ. And he is going to put us in that perfect placement among other believers in the church. And we are going to together build up this wonderful edifice this refuge for the world to come in, this place where the gospel is heralded. Remember again, Jesus came up with the concept and the creation of the church, not men. When we come to church, when we honor and esteem the church, we are honoring the creation of Jesus Christ. We are honoring the very thing for which Christ shed his blood and purchased with his blood. We need to acknowledge and appreciate and come and join in to church. So those whose lives are in the altar 
will love the Church of Jesus Christ, its members, and its ministry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you came up with this concept because you knew that as believers in these last days and in all days, we would need other believers. That in church, we would receive that comfort and that strength, that we'd be able to exercise our gifts, that we would be able to herald the gospel and to be encouraged and established in the gospel, that in church, we would be able to see a glimpse of heaven, that in church, we would get our perspectives right. Lord, we pray for those who are uh, too good for the church and yet think they're believers and think they're pleasing you. Lord, would you write their perspective? Would you humble them and show them, Lord, that they too need the body of Christ? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bless your church, that you would make us that light on a hill that is so clearly seen. We ask this in Jesus' name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.